here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of your very favorite writing podcast. Here is today's episode, and Cece is going to introduce our guest. Thank you, Carly. Today's guest is a retired military officer who holds an MFA and a PhD in creative writing and has been published in Chatelaine, McLean's, The Globe and Mail, and more. Her debut memoir, Girls Need Not Apply, was named a Globe and Mail Top 100 book and was an instant bestseller. She works as a mentor for the University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction and lives in Colorado with her military spouse and bull terrier. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Kelly S. Thompson. For our listeners, I will now give you an overview of Still I Cannot Save You, Kelly's book, and then we'll kick it off with Books with Hooks. So Kelly Thompson and her older sister, Megan, are proof that sisterhood doesn't always equate to friendship. Growing up within a military family, the girls were close despite being temperamental opposites. Kelly, anxious and studious, looked to her big sister for comfort, and Megan, who battled kidney cancer as a toddler, was gregarious and protective. But as she approached adulthood, 
Megan spiraled into a cocaine and opioid addiction, and Kelly's relationship with her sister was torn apart. Their paths diverge as they live their own lives, and it is only when Megan becomes a mother that she and Kelly tentatively face past hurts and re-examine what sisterhood really means. But their reunion is threatened when Megan receives a shocking new diagnosis on a day that should be one for celebration. Now, as the family reels at the prospect of the biggest loss imaginable, Kelly and Megan must share all they can in the time they have, using their mutual sense of humor to chart a course through the darkest of days. At once funny and heartbreaking, Still I Cannot Save You is a story about addiction, abuse, and tragedy. But above all, it is a portrait of an enduring love between sisters. So of course, we're super excited to chat with Kelly about her book. But first, we're going to do books with hooks, and then we'll get on to the author interview. Carly, would you like to kick us off with your query letter? Dear Ms. Waters, I am excited to present to you my novel, The Garland Bells. Told from the points of view of Hadley and her mother, Grace, The Garland Bells presents two stories of forbidden love and the stifling effects of small town gossip. The Garland Bells is set in the fictional town of Garland, South Carolina, and runs 77,200 words. It could be described as a small town romance, mildly spicy, a multi-generational family saga, and or a quirky offbeat romance. When Hadley Martinson witnesses her elderly mother's death, she is startled to hear her call out for a man named Jamie just before dying. Hadley sets out to learn Jamie's identity. Along the way, she is shocked to learn that Grace Hatmaker Mackenzie, to all appearances, is the most upright, uptight, church-going matron, flaunted convention, and ran wild in her youth. While dealing with the aftermath of Grace's death, Hadley allows herself to remember the events of 20 years before when she fell in love for the first time with a man her family deemed completely unacceptable. Meanwhile, Hadley's Aunt Augusta simultaneously reveals to Hadley the details of her mother's misspent youth, including a secret Grace took to her grave. Those revelations completely upend Hadley's life. In the tradition of the Joy Luck Club and Postcards from the Edge, the struggle for mothers and daughters to understand each other dominates the Garland Bells. I earned an MFA in creative writing and have worked as a freelancer, a journalist, and a paralegal. I currently work as a freelance writer. My essays have been included in the award-winning books Call Me, Oksana, The Divinity of Dogs. This is my sixth novel. The first five were self-published on Amazon, To Wit, Ghosts in the Garden City, Leaf Season, Heart of My Own, Return to Marietta, and Dancing the Wreckage. Additionally, I've published numerous articles online and in print, and I've been writing a personal blog, The Crab Chronicles, since 2005. I have more than 700 friends on Facebook and have active accounts on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for your time, D. Thompson. Thank you, Carly. What was the word count on that, and what did you think of the query letter? All right, this one clocks in at 361 words. Okay, so this query letter is written in a very formal style. I know on the podcast, sometimes it's hard when we are kind of doing this in an auditory way, you're not able to kind of see it in front of you. But this is written kind of like a cover letter where it's like the person's address and name and information is at the top, and then they have a date stamp, and then they kind of get into the letter. In the day of email, like we just we don't need this type of format because you're not going to kind of paste this into an email in a way that makes sense because it would just kind of take up the whole top half of the actual page. So really with querying in the age of email, you can just start with Dear Ms. Waters and anything else in terms of information biographically, your address, your phone number, that can all go at the bottom in your email signature as per current email standards. 
One thing that's missing off the top here is just that the title is not in all caps. And I know I feel like I talk about this every episode and I just want to emphasize how incredibly important it is to have your title in all caps because we really want it to stand out. This isn't anybody else's book. This isn't your comps. This isn't any other word on the page. Your title is the most important thing in this query letter other than your name and what it's about, right? Like we want to remember this title. And so when you don't emphasize it, I get frustrated with you guys. And I feel like I say it every single episode because I want you to have a title that stands out. I want to remember your title. And when you're not showing me that I need to remember it, I get frustrated. So please, please put your titles in all caps and I will stop raising my voice at you. All right. So... Another thing about the actual kind of hook and, and plot and stakes here. So it says it presents two stories of forbidden love and the stifling effects of small town gossip. I'm a little bit worried that these stakes aren't high enough. Stifling effects, to me, stifling is kind of like we're putting out a fire, right? We're kind of blanketing a fire, right? We're like, or we're snuffing out a candle. So, so stifling effects, that to me doesn't really sound like something that is enough of a kind of momentum, enough of an engine to carry a whole book. So I worry a little bit about stifling effects being, being big and loud enough here. And then the next thing, so we go through some descriptions of small town romance, multi-gen, you know, offbeat romance. Like these are all interesting, but it feels very much like a slash, 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 right? It's like, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And like, if this person doesn't know what their book is, how am I supposed to know what this book is? And so I think the solve here would be comps, because if we put the comps here, then we don't have to muddle our way through what is this book about? I think that would be really important. Another time that I think a word is misused is... It says flaunted convention and ran wild. So to me, flaunting means like you're showing off. So it's like she's showing, it's, it says she's flaunted convention and ran wild. I think we're trying to say like she was disobeying convention, like she's going against convention and running wild. So I don't know why we're flaunting convention and running wild at the same time. I just feel like flaunted was just not the right word choice there. And then coming to our comp. So we have Joy Luck Club and Postcards from the Edge. So Postcards from the Edge, I believe this is Carrie Fisher's book, or it was based on a movie or some sort of connection to Carrie Fisher. This is a very famous person, a potentially very famous book. So I really encourage people to shy away from things that are very famous and also dated, right? Because that, that really isn't enough to date comp. The other comp being Joy Luck Club. I don't know this person's background, but usually Joy Luck Club is used as a comp for Asian authors. And so I don't know if this person is Asian. I do not like making assumptions about anybody's background by any means. I just wasn't seeing that maybe coming through here in the material. So I just wasn't sure, is that really the best comp here? So I'm just kind of mentioning that in case the alignment is off in the way that I maybe perceive it, but it could be very accurate and that is fine as well. So I think those are the main things. And then in the author bio, it says I have more than 700 friends on Facebook. I think that is very lovely and charming as a personal anecdote, but it's not 700,000. And, you know, and so when we draw attention to things that are not huge numbers, it's drawing attention to the fact that it, it's, it's 700, not 700,000. So I would just strike it through. I just don't think we need it. That's all. Thank you, Carly. And can you give us a summary of what was happening in those opening pages? All right. So we start with the prologue, 1978. We kind of, very kind of third person, like omniscient, you know, imagine something that's very cinematic. We're kind of opening on this scene. It says a sleepy day with the temperature over 95 degrees in Charleston, South Carolina. It is a small antique shop. We focus in on a man named James Bloom who owns the antique shop. He's kind of sitting in his chair at work at six o'clock. He's about to close down the shop and somebody walks in. 
the person that walks in said, you know, asks who he is, they have an interaction, hands him an envelope and says, do you know my wife? Turns out James was having an affair with his wife. And in the envelope were photos that this, the husband intercepted. We don't know what kind of photos. We're assuming they're kind of racy. And the husband says, don't come near my wife again, basically. We have a baby now and I'm going to say that he, that they're mine. So we assume that it's potentially James Blooms's baby. And then we, because it's so third person, it's very hard to kind of, you know, see what's going on in James's point of view. But we understand that James believes that this, this man's wife is the love of his life. And it's the husband that's kind of getting in the way of, of James's happily ever after. The man leaves. James is very upset by this information because you know he believes that this is love of his life and he's never going to know his baby. Presumably, he is the man that fathered this child. Then we get to chapter one, April 2019. So we're into the present and we have Hadley, who is the baby that they spoke about in the prologue, is now taking care of the elderly mother, the woman that they talked about in the racy photos that were exchanged. And she is dying and she's elderly. And that's where we end. As you were reading this, I was thinking, ooh, juicy, juicy, juicy. I'm so curious. And then it was like, oh, I'm sad now. But in a good way. Everything is in a good way. <laughs> okay, so what did you think of the execution? I feel super conflicted because as I was like animating this to you guys, I was very animated. Like I was very into the retelling of this. And so I felt like it had really good energy. It was very interesting. But when I was making my notes before I re was reading this to you guys, I felt like it all was a bit slow. And But now that I'm reading it out loud, I'm like, oh, actually, a lot does happen. So I'm wondering if I just didn't love the POV choice here. Like this third person, super kind of like omniscient, all-knowing, like Jane Austen style of narration in, in this prologue was a little bit challenging to me because I wanted to know more about James in that moment. Like, cause when he says, you know, this man walks in, it's so, it's so omniscient that I have no idea how James actually feels about this man or this love of his life. It, it just, I, I just really wanted to be in this scene a little bit more. So I felt like, I don't think third person's working here potentially, like, cause it's a prologue. You could offset this and do first. And then we would know how much this man would have loved his baby daughter that he never got to know. So I would potentially flip that into a first or play around with it. You know, I'm not saying it has to be that. I'm just saying I wish that I was a bit more emotionally connected to this. And I think just, yeah, the, the kind of historical writing style of the prologue is a bit jarring against the contemporary jump. Sometimes readers build this expectation of like, oh, this is a historical novel and like I'm settling in and I'm getting into this. And then we flip to 2019. It's like all of a sudden it's like, you know, contemporary. So that can work in, in our favor a lot of the times because it can be great that we like keep readers on their toes. And but we have to have enough to keep them hooked. And so, I, I as I said, I think this has all the elements, all the ingredients like I think we're cooking here. So maybe it's just me that that wasn't, you know, vibing with this with this particular story, because I really want to like it. And I think this is super interesting and animated. And, and I think it's going to find some success. But you know, maybe this is just not for me. Thank you, Carly. And now we'll move on to Kelly. Kelly, will you read us your query letter, please? There is a lovely note at the top of this one that says, thank you, Bianca, Carly and Cece for all you do on the shit no one tells you about writing my weekly MFA, which I liked. Dear Cece, because you love stories of wealth gone toxic, I am submitting 16 stories, a 93,000 words family saga and memoir. It blends Ava Chin's investigation of her Chinese American roots in Mott Street with Juliet Patterson's coming to terms with a parent's suicide in Sinkhole, garnished with the glamour of crazy rich Asians. When I go to a friend's funeral and see his now fatherless 12-year-old daughter, the grief I have for my mother resurfaces. 
Though I would like to tell my young children about their missing grandmother, I find it almost impossible to talk about her suicide when I was four years old. Compelled to understand and tell her story, I begin researching both sides of my family, going back to the late 1800s in part to avoid my mother's era and in part because I know it will eventually lead me to her. Through a new contact, my brother and I are invited to Zongse. Apologies for my pronunciation in case I've chopped that up. Uh, the birthplace of our mother's grandfather. In China, we feel a powerful connection to this great grandfather. On my father's side of the family, two photos help me reconstruct the life of my Jewish great grandfather in Poland in 1895, who died shortly before his son, my grandfather, was born. I tell the stories generation by generation, concluding in 1995. I track my ancestors' immigration from China, Poland, and Lithuania, settling in Oakland, Reno, and Los Angeles. While my Chinese-American relatives build and squander a fortune, my Jewish kin work their way up through the garment industry to my father, a doctor. Woven through the chapters is my journey of discovery, not only of my family's tragedies and triumphs, but of my own identity. Ultimately, by honoring the lives of my ancestors and telling my mother's story, my relationship with my heritage and her death transforms. I am an American living in London, with a degree in visual arts and art history from Brown University and a background in branding and communications, I now wear many hats at the B Corp Sustainability Consultancy my husband and I own and manage. I am a member of WFWA and a seasoned public speaker with almost 4,000 followers on LinkedIn and 1,000 followers each on Twitter and Instagram. This is my debut. As per shit guidelines, I'm including the first five pages and would be delighted to send you the full manuscript. Regards, Madeline Postman. Thank you, Kelly. Carly, I'm curious to think what you thought of that query letter. All right. So 16 stories. So to me, this sounds like a short story collection, 16 stories. I don't know if it's the idea it's going to be 16 essays or 16 chapters, or if there is some sort of like numeric link here where we're trying to kind of pull together a cutesy title, I would change the title. If it was me. Also 16 stories, it could be like 16 stories about trucks or turtles. Like what are these 16 stories about? So I would just love a bit more of a title that really connected us deeply to the material. So I would just, you know, I suggest you throw out some more options just to kind of see what could potentially work here. I think this is such a lovely idea. This, you know, I, I think it, this is the thing about memoir, right? Like we, we need two things. We need something that everybody can relate to as an access point, but we need something so incredible that other people are going to want to experience it and pay $30 for this book, right? These are the two things we need. So I think we have these puzzle pieces here, which I think is really interesting. The only thing I worry about is I, I do feel like we're missing a single, we're missing that singular thread, that singular link. And so I understand the kind of starting off point of how we're on this journey, but it sounds like we cover a lot, right? We're tracking the ancestors' immigration through all of these places. And I don't know, I guess I understand that our main character is the single thread, but I think we're relying too much on that. I think we need a thematic single link as well, other than just our character's single thread. So Cece, what was your take there? I had not thought about the title and now I love that note. I'm so glad we're both doing this one. I, I, I agree that those two elements in memoir are essential and they're so present here. Like, good job. I will be honest and say that, unfortunately, most of the memoir submissions I get, I'm not curious based on the query letter. I, I still scroll down. I'll still look at the pages because you never know when it comes to the writing style. But it is really hard to make someone feel curious with real life. And I was curious here. 
Like when I read this, I was like, I am curious. I would definitely, definitely read this. When it comes to the through line, it's a very insightful point. And perhaps you could find that in your relationship with your own children, right? Like, so to the writer, maybe there's something about why you kept this a secret. And in exploring your family history, you you come to terms with that with that question and you find that answer. I don't know. Probably that's not it because I don't know you, but it could be something like that, right? Like you could be trying to answer this one question. A really good technique for anyone who's writing memoir is to keep a post-it, like a tiny, tiny post-it with a question. Like what is the question your book is ultimately answering? And you keep that next to your computer, right? So whenever you're deviating, whenever you don't know what the point of something is, whenever you're feeling like, what am I even doing? You go back to that question and that can be really helpful. A few other notes. There's a line that reads, in China, we feel a powerful connection to this great grandfather. I'm assuming he isn't alive, but I also didn't quite know. And I was like, is it like a spiritual connection to his memory? So I would just clarify that for the people like me who struggle with literality. And I think that, you know, overall, great hook, great, great hook. It's going to come down to whether your writing style is one that's keeping me hooked because the premise is really, really interesting. Okay. So now I will ask Kelly, could you give us a summary of what happened on those opening pages, please? So we start out in England in 2015. We're at a funeral and it's clearly a bunch of family that are all related. And for a while, I'm not quite sure who's died. So that remains a bit of a mystery into the next page. So there's a death. We know we're grieving. There's a mention at some point about a bit of a question in the author's head, am I at my mother's funeral? And so we get this sense that there's a connection to a previous loss that makes us go, hmm. So there's also, we're told at this point that there's also a child who's involved grieving their father. So that also, I think, sits with us as the reader. And then we kind of flip at one point, then we're a bit of a line break and at a um, at a pub, as you do after a funeral in the UK. And so we're at a pub and the women of the family, the sisters are talking about loss and about sort of the importance of birth and different experiences that they've shared together. And we get a sense that the birth of this child who's just lost her father is also a really big shaping moment for a lot of the family members. And then we also find out there's sort of another line break. And then we also find out about the narrator has lost their mother at some point and lost her to suicide. So a bit of a couple pages about not really sharing a lot of that information that the mother died and how she died as well, which is sort of where I think is the hook for readers to continue reading. Interesting. And what did you think about the execution? I made so many notes, it almost got a bit hilarious. But this is also, you know, this is sort of what I do every day for my job. So and also memoir. So it was right up my alley. And I was excited. The author has a really beautiful way with description. I'll say first, like, uh, there were so many sentences that I would highlight and go, Oh, that's lovely. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's, that's, and really, you know, I think a description really done well is one that compares it to something really new and unique. And there were a lot of instances of that, that really sat nicely with me. Also a lot of really great moments of at the end of the line breaks, a really beautiful poignant sentence that didn't do that irritating little summary thing that we all have a tendency to do. You know, like we, we want to wrap it up in a tidy package for the reader and say, this is what this section was about. And she doesn't do that. So I thought it was really beautiful. I'm just trying to scroll through my 900 notes. So I have a lot of really loving all the detail. There was so many people in the characters. So that was a concern I had was there's a lot of characters introduced, a lot of names all in a very short period of time. 
and we don't get enough about them to know how they're all different from one another and how they're all connected. And while I don't feel like I need all that information 100% right away, it's fine to have your reader have certain question marks about relationships between people. It is necessary when we need to know for our understanding of how this scene is playing out. So I'd find look for ways where you could develop and sort of bring out who each character is so that they have the same kind of meaning for us. There was also these instances where the narrator is kind of reflecting in their own head or sort of imagining conversations in some cases. And they were also in quotation marks. And I got a little like jumbled up as to if these were conversations that really happened. And I'd encourage to look at how other writers handle this kind of thing, sort of like an interior monologue. I do a lot of taking those kinds of things in my own books and putting them in italics. And the, and the writer does do that in one sentence where she says, am I, am I at my mother's funeral? So find a way to set off conversations and things that are imagined or sort of happening in your head that help us know that they're separate from what's happening before us. There were a couple things where I suggested just like eliminating junky words or reading a sentence out loud to catch when it's getting a little too jumbled up and complicated, which is something I think a lot of us do. We want to make it sound really beautiful and we want to pack in all those really good words we've just picked, but sometimes it just clunks up the tongue and it clunks up the brain in the same way when we read through it. It wasn't until several pages in until I sort of knew whose funeral we were at. And I was wondering how much did I know based on the query letter that had explained a lot of this to me? And then how much did I know as the reader? So I think a really hard thing about memoir is remembering what your reader knows versus what you know. And we can forget all these things in our head that we're aware of, but the reader isn't. So just like Cece suggested, I love a good post-it note. And I really love to kind of map out pieces of information that I've given and also pieces of information I still need to give for the story to make sense. There was some talk when the when the sisters are sitting in the pub and they're talking about sort of the birth of this of the child who's just lost her father and how monumental it was. And I'd encourage the author to really dig in here because I mean definitely the birth of they they talk about how they've been to other births in the family, but I wanted a little bit more here. Like what made it so important and why the reader can't, it's, it's not always just enough to tell us that, but the last sentence of that section was really gorgeous. I think about consequences, friends, family, births, deaths, a seed is sown. And I was like, dun, dun, dun. It felt very like it kept me going. So I thought that was really beautiful. And then I wasn't sure how much was, you know, the very nature of this is five pages. But this is presented to us as the five pages of the opening chapter. And holy mackerel, there's a lot going on in these five pages to the point that I was like, woo, you know, we, we got to reel back a little bit for to let it settle with us, to let us as a reader get invested in the story. I really, so I would also question, is the funeral 100% the place to start the story? Or is it somewhere else? I really liked coming back to... The, the Chinese roots of the author and the loss of their mother and sort of a, almost like a, a handful of shame of how she was lost because she died by suicide. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. So it was almost just like, it was really heavy as a first five pages. You got to kind of let us like simmer into the the chilly water, you know, when you're stepping in, it's a little cold and you need time to get up to the armpits. I want some armpit time. And then... I also really encourage memoirists to avoid 
phrasing like I probably or maybe it happened like this or I think it was like this. If you don't remember, you don't have to say it. But also, we're trusting you to tell us a true story. So I th- I really encourage eliminating a lot of that kind of phrasing because it builds an uncertainty. And we know it's memoir. And therefore, I think that an average reader knows that you can't remember everything and how every conversation went. And so we don't need you to know it 100%. So just give us what you do remember. Other than that, I thought it would, I mean, the writing is so lovely in this work that I really don't have a question mark about the author's ability to get published. I think it's about really pinpointing what the story is and sitting there. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. 
Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup page. And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Thank you so much, Kelly, for coming on and sharing your incredible memoir wisdom. So Cece, I think we are ready to move on to you. All right, let's do this. Dear Cecilia, after taking several of your online courses and listening to you masterfully break down books in your book club, I believe my 80,000-word dual-timeline upmarket women's fiction novel, Paper Boats, has the kind of dysfunctional sister relationship you can get excited about. It has a paper palace structure with the kind of flawed, interiority-filled protagonist you might find in a Marion Keyes novel, again, Rachel. Content warning. This query mentions miscarriage and domestic abuse. Lee isn't upset about starting a miscarriage the day before leaving for her honeymoon in the south of Spain. She never planned to go through with the pregnancy, the result of a drunken night she can barely remember. She wishes she could confess everything to her husband, Fossey, but isn't willing to risk losing him over blurry details. When Lee's miscarriage develops serious complications, she admits to Fossey that she had booked an abortion, but she's wheeled off to surgery before getting the chance to explain why. When Lee wakes up, Fossey is gone, making her certain that his newfound religious beliefs have become more important to him than she is. Though he has always been against abortion, he only recently gave up alcohol, which is something Lee relies on to deal with things like a job that amplifies her social anxiety, a favorite child sister, of which she is sure because she overheard her father confirming it when she was a little girl, and the secret to her father's infidelity she has been forced to keep for over 20 years. When Lee's sister, Viv, unexpectedly shows up in Spain after finding out about Lee's surgery, with the news of a sibling neither sister knew they had, it gives Lee the opportunity to let go of a lot of the resentment that sent her spiraling in the first place. Lee travels back home to Montreal, ready to make things right with Fosse, and while honesty and sobriety seem to be helping immensely, her dignity, her marriage, and her family are put to the ultimate test at the family cottage when a crucial detail surfaces about the night of Lee's big mistake. I graduated from Concordia University with a BC Com in marketing and have since completed Concordia's creative writing certificate. I have had personal essays published in Moms Don't Have Time to Write, Elephant Journal, and The Mother Load, among other publications. When I'm not at my full-time job buying food or raising my two fierce little monsters, I can be found hard at work on my second novel. Thank you for reading my first five pages as requested. Can I send you the full manuscript? Sincerely, Trish DiStefano. Thank you, Cece. Will you tell us how long that query letter was and what you thought of it? Okay, so this one came in at 442 words. A small note, you, you italicized the author's name in the, for one of the comps, Marion Keys. You don't need to italicize the author's name. 
just just the titles if you want to or go with all caps if if that's if that's something that's best for you i personally prefer all caps definitely all caps for your title in terms of the plot paragraphs i really like that you gave us so many escalating plot points sometimes especially when i'm reading women's fiction I get a lot of introspective information, but not a lot of plot points. And this didn't happen here. And that was really exciting because I could see scenes being previewed, kind of like we see in a movie trailer. So that was really good. But two notes that I don't think are quite working just yet. One, there's a line that reads, she finds out about the new sibling, right? And it gives Lee the opportunity to let go of the resentment that sent her spiraling in the first place. That is beautiful. That is so healthy and healing and amazing. We are not in the business of healthy. We are in the business of interesting. So strike that line. You know, when she finds out about that sibling, then things get complicated. You're going to write a line that's going to promise more conflict. And yes, you can say that, you know, she is determined to make her life work. She goes to the family cottage, stuff like that. That is fine. But save the healing for the pages. We, we don't need to hear about the healing. And then the second thing is, I don't see how the worlds collide. We have her relationship with her sister, very interesting, very juicy. We have the fact that this new sibling pops up, very interesting, very juicy. And then we have her relationship with Fosse, and I'm unclear on you know what the secret is, which of course is a good thing because I don't want you to give that away, but I don't see how the worlds are colliding and the worlds have to collide. Something about the new sibling needs to be the thing that lets her secret come out or maybe the sister, like I don't know what the connection is, what the thread is. But it's something that we refer to on the podcast as the web effect. It all needs to feel like a spider's web, right? Like everything very intentional and one thing holding the other and super connected. So sometimes I read books and I go, this feels like two stories and two interesting stories, but I don't see how they come together. And you really want to give the agent that feel of how it comes together. And then as a final note, I want to say, Trish, you justified margins on the pages and that is my love language. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you so much, Cece. Now we're going to turn to the pages. So give us a little overview and then dive into your thoughts. So it's the day after her wedding and the protagonist wakes up shortly after falling asleep and she is having what she believes and hopes is a miscarriage. She goes to great lengths not to wake up her husband and on the next day she's she spends the day at the ER and the doctor isn't a great doctor, but he tells her, yes, you're miscarrying and she's fine with that. When her husband calls, she lies and says she's at the grocery store. And then she asks the doctor if she can still fly because she's supposed to leave on her honeymoon. And the doctor says, yes, that's totally fine. So that's what happens when it comes to my notes. So as a minor, not that a minor, but as a micro thing, the first two lines right now are very explanation heavy. It reads, the day after my wedding, I found out I was having a miscarriage. I wasn't sad about it. When lines are explanation heavy, especially opening lines, you are leaking tension. You don't want to leak tension. You want tension to be upped. We all want that. So I would actually go with your next two lines as your opening lines, and I'll read them. It was the makeup that woke me. Had it not been for those ridiculous lashes, I may not have noticed the blood until morning. The blood! I'm going to read this and I'm going to go, wait, what? blood and also you're wearing makeup so probably you had a big night before you know that that's interesting it's gonna make me go oh i want to know more so you have your first lines you just didn't place them as first lines i am 100 percent sure about this by the way and then when it comes to the interiority you did a phenomenal job with her relationship with her mother 
there are two sharp, specific, interesting, detailed, but not like not overwritten mentions of how her mother affects her. And I could not wait to read more about her relationship with her mother. Like truly phenomenal job. Her mom does not appear on these pages, by the way. It is all interiority. It made sense. It didn't feel dumb. It felt perfect, like actual perfect. However, and here's the deal, Trish, what are you doing to me? When it comes to the husband, I have no idea how she feels about him. Like, I know she feels scared that he'll find out, but why? Like, she's going to great lengths to hide this from him, and it's clearly coming from a place of fear. But is it fear as in she worries she'll hurt his feelings? Like, she fears she'll hurt him? Or is it fear like she fears because she thinks he'll hurt her in any way, right? Like, whether it's leaving her or anything else. Like, I have no clue. She keeps bringing him up in her head, and yet we don't get any specificity to the emotionality. And it's not a curiosity seed because it's not like you gave me enough to be like, ooh, it's more like there is no emotionality whatsoever when she thinks about him. There is interiority, but it's, there's no emotionality. So I have no idea how she feels about him. And not just when it comes to the secret, right? Like some, there's a line where she says, he's lucky enough to do what he loves for a living. And there's no, nothing centering this on her. Like, how does she feel about his passion for work? Does she ever feel like she comes second to his work? Does that give her resentment? Or perhaps it's immensely relieving that he loves his work because otherwise she worries he'd be clingy. Or maybe she grew up with a dad who did not love his job. And so she's so grateful that her husband loves his job. Or maybe she thinks it's not real work because you're not supposed to love real work. I have no idea, right? But her relationship with work, family, husband, these things all need to come at play through the micro moments with him. And you are keeping us at arm's length. I'm pretty sure that it's intentional. I'm pretty sure that you want to keep us curious, but I need a little bit more, just like a little bit more because you're doing such a good job with the mom. So I know you can do a good job here too. And thank you for sharing. Okay, so now we're all done with our books with hooks. We will move on to our wonderful author interview with Kelly, who did such an amazing job with the submission. Thank you for that again, Kelly. Let's go on to that. Okay, so Kelly, it's not often that we get a doctor of creative writing or a memoirist who has brought out two memoirs, so we really want to pick your brain. And we hear more and more that to publish a memoir, you need to be a famous person or have like millions of social media followers. But of course, that wasn't the case with you. And it's not the case with many of the breakout memoirs that we see. So can you take us through your journey to publication in terms of getting a big five publisher to publish two of your memoirs in a fairly short period? Well, surprise, surprise, it involves a lot of failure first, which I'm always happy to talk about. My first book, I had a really great, I actually started out with fiction. It was a, it was a fiction piece and I had submitted it to my, who I hoped would be my agent. And she was like, you know, it's really close, but it's just like, it's not quite there. And this was my military memoir. So I had sort of, I wanted to make it sexier in terms of, I thought this is where the story is, is women at war, right? This is where we tell the story of women in the military. It was my agent who said, I think it's more than that. And maybe look at your own experience. And I used to think I didn't do anything exciting in the military per se. So I felt unentitled to my story. And I think memoir really comes down to owning your own story. And I think we're seeing this real ascendancy of it because we're hungry for experiences that are like our own or really different from our own. There's nothing quite like stepping into the shoes of someone else to help you grow as a human. And so I think... You know, when, when people would say, oh, no one's publishing debut memoirs, I mean, no one's doing a lot of things, but there's always 
those people where tenacity pays off. And I always say that's one place where the military gave me some good lessons. I am tenacious, almost to a point of irritating. So my first book went out my when I finally finished it, years after it had been fiction, and my agent sent it out to a bunch of publishers, and no one wanted it. No one wanted it at all. And then, surprise, the Me Too movement happened, and then it went into pre- it sold in preempt to McClellan Stewart. So the book had not changed. And I, and I think I, I always think this is an important story because we think people have these like beautiful moments of success and they're so much better than me. And I just, that's just not what it is. Sometimes it is timing. It is taste. It is the person who's sitting at the table that day. Someone's in a really bad mood and they didn't want to read this and this and this. And so I think it's really hard. It's a business with so much, what's the word, rejection. And when you're writing memoir, it's like they're rejecting your writing is hard enough, much less when it's your lived experience. And because my publisher had writer first refusal on my second book, my my sister was actually dying while I was writing and in edits for my first book. So I started writing the second one right away. And I think once you've already proven yourself, they were a little more willing to take a risk on the second. Absolutely. And kudos to you because that is so impressive. And thank you for sharing the vulnerable stories of rejection because it is important for everyone to know that this is usually a long road. I'm saying usually, I don't know anyone for whom it wasn't a long road. Like it just is always a long road. (laughs) So what's your process when mapping out each of your memoirs. There's so much ground to cover and so many big moments to include. I know some memoirs, they begin at the end and then they circle back to the beginning with kind of a looking back vibe. And then some other people, they start at the beginning and basically like, how do you decide where the beginning is? Because who knows? How do you map out each moment that has to be there? And was it different for the first versus the second? Really great question. I I tend to not do a ton of organizing until I have a first draft out. And and it's because certain memories will spark at different times. And it's like, I got to sit with that. Or maybe I had therapy that day. And then it's like, oh, I have to write about that memory I was just talking about. And so I let it kind of come to me as it does. I think my first book, because so much time had passed, you know, it had been about seven years since I'd left the military by the time the book came out. Whereas the book about my sister, I was writing it while she was dying. So it was so much more immediate to me. So the first book, I I probably wrote another 50, 60,000 words that ended up getting cut very close to publishing, like right before we went to copy edit. Because, and I had to do what you said with a post-it. And uh, I, I bought my editor a little brass plate that I mailed to her. And it says, what would Jenny do? Because inevitably, if I felt like I needed to email my editor, Jenny, and say, I don't know what to do here, whether or not to include this, her wisdom was always really helpful. So I had to have a note to say, what is this book about? Because for example, the the Still I Cannot Save You had a lot of, initially contained a lot of portions about my sister's time in addiction. And a little less about her illness and sort of domestic violence and that kind of thing. And I had to say, okay, but is that what it's about? Or is it about how sisters come back to one another? So I do a lot of shaping of each chapter where I look at it and say, is this serving those like top three themes that I'm really looking at? Is this moving the story forward? And if not, it's hard in memoir because we have this feeling like, oh, but this memory is really important. But sometimes that memory is important to you. And it's not 
necessarily important to the book and on the page. And so you're forced to ask yourself which ones are maybe a little like spicier in terms of memories and which ones to include. Absolutely. Because it's not a journal. You're not writing it for your own recollection or your own archives. You're writing this for a reader and readers like to be kept curious. So you're so raw and honest in Still I Cannot Save You in terms of where you felt you were falling short and the frustration you felt that your sister was being given so many free passes by your family when you were having to keep it all together and still expect to be forgiving and loving towards her. These are messy emotions, right? Like, And I think that that kind of emotional honesty is is probably at the heart of why your book sold and, and, and did so well, right? Like all your work all around. How difficult is it, that kind of emotional honesty about yourself as a memoirist? And how integral is it for memoirists to be able to do that in your view? I think where memoir fails is when the writer isn't willing to look at their own ugly. And not having a willingness to say, sometimes I was a shit person, you know? And and I made bad choices. And I was uneducated about, for like with my sister, I was really uneducated about addiction. And and I was in my early 20s and therefore I was really selfish, (laughs) you know? Like I just was. I was very focused on my own life. And it doesn't mean my anger wasn't valid. But it does mean in memoir, I have to turn a bit of a interrogation light onto it and say, okay, how much of that anger was valid and how much of it was just sibling rivalry or me being irritated or whatever the case may be. And it was the same thing with my first book. You know, I was talking about sexual harassment in the military. It was also really hard to look at my own role in perpetuating that culture within the forces, because I did perpetuate it in a million different ways. So if you're not willing and able to do that, you're not ready to write a memoir, because people will sense when you are skirting your own responsibility. And it also makes the reader trust you. You know, if you're willing to be like, hey, I am a flawed human, just like everyone else I'm writing about, you have to look at yourself as a character to say, to really look at the good and the bad because we contain multitudes and that's what makes us beautiful. And part of the reason I wrote my book about my sister was every relationship I was seeing about grief, the relationship was really tidy and nice. And the person who died was really great and martyrized. And I was like, well, that's not real life. And we have a tendency by the nature of grief to look at people we loved and look at their rosy bits. And I always think, This is what's really nice in my family is we crack a lot of jokes about, you know, my sister being like a totally crap, (laughs) totally crap house cleaner or keeper, you know, like she and and cracking jokes about all of our flaws. And I think there's a lot of beauty in looking at the ugly. A lot of beauty and a lot of interesting too. One of the things I always say when I'm reading submissions for memoir, but honestly for any, any type of narrative is that happy go lucky is really happy go boring. Like, I'm so sorry, but if everything's always so nice and perfect and tidy and sweet, it's not interesting. It's, it's beautiful and it can be inspiring in the right setting when it comes to a story. Like we need reality. We need the messy so I remember my sister saying on that note, sorry, Cece, my sister said, when my sister asked me to write this book, so well, before she died, she said, you better write about us. And she's like, and don't leave out the ugly parts. And I was like, 
it would be impossible. This It was like a soap opera. Like the book is actually like a soap opera. And eventually there was so much other ridiculousness that my editor was like, I think maybe we got to cut because <laughs> it was getting like unbelievable. So if I have anything to thank my dead sister for, it's for some really juicy subject matter. And I know she's up there just like thanking her, thanking her for the subject matter, but also for the permission, not that you need it, but like kind of awesome that she gave you her endorsement, you know, kind of awesome that she was able to see herself like that and to own it. Like this is really inspiring and, you know, aspirational too. So how do you take something that was so personal to you and make it so that it has the kind of personal universal element that will make readers want to pick it up? I think part of it is my PhD was literally all about writing about trauma. So how do we take really hard moments and reflect on them in a way that is universal? And I think this is the thing about memoir that's really special is there is no universal experience, especially if something everyone will experience grief at some point or another, whether it's the whether it's bereavement of a person or whether it's grief just over the million ways in which life can wound us. <laughs> but I really think about there's this really beautiful poem, and of course the author's escaping me, but it says, Right now there is someone out there with a wound in the shape of your words. So I think, who is the person out there who has a wound in the shape of my words that only I can fill? And this is why I think about when you said initially that there is no, you know, what do you do? What do you say to writers when they say no one's publishing memoir? And I say, because that wound is in the shape of my words, my words only, and only I can fill that for someone. And so... I try to not, I don't, I wouldn't say I don't think about the writer. I think about the writer when I feel like I can't go on. Because sometimes, again, Terry just talking about it, sometimes writing about those really horrible moments with my sister in hospice, in the most traumatic death that I could imagine, I'd have to look back and go, oh, but who's out there who needs that? Because I needed it. I wrote it because I needed it because there was no books that sat with that moment of dying that I always say, like, there were lots of things that said, this is what's going to happen to the body when someone dies. And I was like, but what's going to happen to my heart? Like, what's my heart going to do? And I found it in some beautiful authors kind of shortly afterwards when I was researching for my PhD, but the really like common books at the time about death skirted it. And I wanted to really sit in it. And uh, so I think that's what I say to myself. I say, it's just, who needs this? Who's sitting there? I feel like we definitely have to Google who this author is, or I'll just be like absolutely sick with myself that I've not given them sort of the the credit that they deserve. But yeah, I think it, oh, I have it here. I have it saved in my favorites. Sean Thomas Daughtry. And that's from a collection called well, The Second that collection o of now Sorrow. Because- that might have been the most beautiful quote. Yeah, like so yeah. beautiful. Now I'm crying. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. Okay. I was not prepared for that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. Okay. Uh, my, my, my next question is, I don't want to get emotional too. Um, my next question is, how did you practice self-care while you were writing this? Because I don't want to you know, put words in your mouth, but I imagine it must have been hard, important, of course, and, you know, also healing at times, but, but hard. 
I think literally the only way I go on is therapy. Count, my, my counselor, it's almost hilarious. He is a white veteran from the forces, a white man. And I remember sitting down and being like, this is never going to work. <laughs> I cannot talk to a therapist who is a veteran of the forces and knows half the people I know. And, and yet he's made this really beautiful safe space with me to share. I actually thank him in my acknowledgments. I get by with therapy and medication because I need it because I suffer with depression and anxiety, which I also really talk a lot about in the book. But also my writing is my own therapy. I think I really wanted to take my sister's death and my sister had a really small, often sad life. And I wanted to take it and give something to someone else and say, maybe you'll take something from this and you'll connect with someone you love or you'll learn how to support someone going through addiction or you'll learn your own role in wounding people you loved and own it for them. So I think that really is the thing that gets me through. Also dogs. I mean, Cece, what are we without our dogs? My my dog who I write about a lot in this book, his name was Pot Roast and him and my sister were quite like freaking frag. And he died of the same cancer as her eight months later, which was weird. So now I have ham as I'm developing a meat theme of dogs. And when I am having a really rough day, I remember my therapist saying to me once, got to be more like the dog. The dog's in the moment. The dog's not worrying about what happened and what's going to happen. And they are this delicious reminder of what is good in the world. So dogs and therapy. Could we combine the two like yoga and, and with dogs, you know, you see, the I a hundred percent subscribe to that. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, where would we be without our dogs? Oh gosh. So for my final craft question, and then I have my actual, actual final question. I want you to imagine that you're sitting in a coffee shop with our memoir listeners and they're all like, Kelly, if you can magically make us know something, understand something, like if you can magically get a flash drive from your brain and put it into theirs, what do you think that would be? What, what wisdom would come first? Think of yourself as character because it helps you to think of how other people look at you and it helps you give a more fulsome you on the page. Sometimes we have the sense that we're the hero of our own lives and yet no one's the hero and no one's the villain. This is not a Marvel comic, you know, this is life. So, you know, it kind of comes back to owning your own ugliness and owning your own beauty and really presenting it to the reader and saying, here's all this big hot mess, but let me now make a bit of sense of it for you. And you want to be really careful about hammering the reader over the head with your meaning. I see a lot of, you know, at King's where I'm a mentor, I see a lot of these big summary paragraphs and pages of the reader trying to explain how they felt and explain what was going on. Show it to me. And I don't mean that show and tell. I mean, give me that conflict so I can come to my own sense of resolution from that. It really involves... Also, there's so many people I notice who want to write memoir and they don't read it. And oh dear, oh dear, you know, you really got to dig into what's going on out there. Just like in a query when you're giving comps, you really have to know what else is out there, partly because then you're going to know what sells, but also you find that it answers so many questions for you. You know, I get a lot of people in panic, like, what if I can't remember this? Or what if I, and I'll say, 
go to Annie Erno's A Girl Story and read that. And she doesn't remember half of the stuff, but look at how she deals with that. Or, oh, I don't know. What if I wanted to tell it from the point of view of like a different family member, but it was all our story. Look at Miriam Taves, uh, Swing Low. You know, like you have to know what else is going out there so that you can see how other people handle the tricky, messy bits of memory, of trauma's effect on memory, of how we handle things that we don't want to share. Because this is actually, okay, now I've answered my, I've answered my own question after gabbering on for eternity. Just because you write memoir and you give people parts of yourself, you owe no one all of you. So sometimes people feel an entitlement. Oh, you shared this and this and this. So I want to know this and this and this. You don't owe anyone any of that. And you have to make your own comfort level with what creative nonfiction is and what memoir is and where you, some people say, oh, I don't think you can eliminate an entire character because that's not true to the story. Can you still eliminate that person and not tell untruth the rest of the way? So yeah, you get to keep parts Absolutely. of you private still. That's allowed. We'll see now all the writers hole. at the coffee I went all shop, over the place there, Cece. The writers are happy because they're getting I a tell whole you, bunch I'm very of wisdom, spicy. So it's a good thing. Do not apologize. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> Welcome to Kelly's This is my TED talk. talk. Oh gosh. So, okay. Final question. Can you please recommend us a book? It can be a book that you've already read and loved, or it can be a book that you have not read yet and you're excited. Yes, I can. And I am ready for this. And normally I get very overwhelmed by this question because, I mean, the bookshelves behind me, I am like a, I mean, like most people in this industry, I read a lot. I think another thing when it comes to memoir is we have this feeling like maybe we're not entitled to our stories or we say, I've not really been through anything. Who am I to write about? my life. So I always go back to Melissa Phoebos. And she wrote a beautiful memoir about her time as a dominatrix and sort of coming to term with her sexuality and addiction. She wrote a beautiful collection of essays about called Girlhood that was all about when young girls start to recognize that their bodies are being sexualized. But then she wrote a book called Bodywork, The Power of the Personal Narrative. And if anyone is writing nonfiction and you need, I don't know, the permission or someone to say your story matters, you read Bodywork by Melissa Phoebos. And she talks in particular about how women's stories have been kept quiet for a really long time. Marginalized stories, people from non-binary people, LGBTQIA folks, we need these stories. And I remember reading it and feeling so seen for what my purpose felt as a writer. So she came and gave a lecture to Kings this year. And I was like, clearly we need to be best friends. Like I'm pretty determined that Melissa Phoebos and I need to be best friends. Melissa Phoebos, are you listening? I'm not a stalker. I think if I, I find out that Melissa Phoebos listens to our podcast, I will be simultaneously <laughs> terrified and so thrilled. But I die. you are... Kelly and I want to be best friends with you because I'm just going to throw myself there in the mix too, you know? Like I'm not going to waste this opportunity yeah. um, because she's so awesome. Thank you so much for that, Kelly. That was so great. We really appreciate, com appreciate you coming on and we hope to see you again. I feel so lucky. It was so nice chatting with you. Here's the thing.
Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.